broadcasting under the night sky from the edge of an undisclosed jungle on the Gulf of Mexico. I'm Christopher Garitano, your voice in the night. For the next hour, allow me to be your guide into the bizarre unknown, the fantastic macabre, and together we'll journey to that borderland between fiction and reality, a place beyond all rational explanation. We are now off to the witch. I saw Bigfoot, I've had one sighting, but I've had numerous incidents where I've been able to, to, to develop somewhat of a rapport with them. Uh, well, there's a great deal more love in this world than it's ever expressed. And animals are no different than people. And if you think positively and act positively and through the media of soft voice, it's amazing how you can develop a rapport with wild animals. And I'm not talking about park animals. I'm talking about wild animals. And Bigfoot is no different. The group believes they are dealing with a nocturnal nomadic creature who keeps constantly on the move. One of the reasons it's been so hard to capture it on film. That was an interview from the classic TV series In Search Of, hosted by the mighty Leonard Nimoy. It was that series, episode, and that interview in particular that opened my mind and imagination to the world of Bigfoot. The legend of an undiscovered species, a wild man hominid somewhere between human and ape, survived the ice ages and dwells deep in the wilderness of our modern day. It is all at once terrifying and exhilarating, and tonight I have the privilege of conducting my own interview with a man who has spent his entire life exploring the Bigfoot after his own personal encounter as a boy in the 1960s. So gather around the fireplace on this cold winter night to hear some of the best tales on the subject, and I'll return after this commercial break. After these messages, we'll be right back. Do you really believe there's a creature? Mm hmm. Yep, I do. <laughs> The creature from Black Lake is coming to a theater near you. A Jim McCullough production, rated PG. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and tonight's guest is a Bigfoot explorer to find. He's dedicated most of his adult life not only to searching for the species, but he also claims to have encountered and communicated with them many times. 
Tonight you'll hear Joe Stewart's Bigfoot stories, but also a sample of recordings of bone-chilling screams in the dark night of the Michigan wilderness. Rarely have I been truly scared and astonished in my adult life, but when I heard Joe's Bigfoot recordings, and you'll hear them soon, it sent a genuine chill down my spine. So here's my interview with Joe Stewart. Well, I was born in Flint, Michigan, spent my whole life in Flint, or in Michigan, pretty much grew up in the uh, Lansing area, the capital. Always been interested in um, paranormal phenomena, uh, UFOs initially, probably back in 64, the Barney and Betty Hill case when that came out, I was very much interested in that and it kind of got me into UFOs. And uh, I got into cryptozoology. The interest in Bigfoot was in 68 when I actually had an encounter with one while I was hunting with my father up in uh, Upper Michigan, up in uh, the Alpena area, kind of close to where we were back in 2014, a little bit south of there, my first encounter. So that kind of set me on the path of trying to understand what I was looking at, and that was before the Patterson thing came out. It was just came out, I think, that, I think I saw it that summer in 68, I think it was, and it came in the magazine, and that's that's when I realized what I had seen. If you can take me back, back to that time when you were with your father and, and create the atmosphere for me, where were you? Where did the trip begin? Well, it was a, okay, it was a uh, deer hunting trip in um, October. I was a bow hunter. We were hunting white-tailed deer. And it was up there in Alpena, which is a little bit northern Michigan, kind of northeast of the capital. And uh, we're bow hunters, and we were hunting, uh, I think it was probably around mid-October is usually when we did that. It was evening. Uh, my father had some other friends with them, and we had a cabin. We were staying, and I was out on my own hunting just just around dusk. And I was standing by a field. I had heard stories about there was a big buck around, so I thought maybe I'd be lucky and i get a chance. At the time, I was 14 years old at that time. And I was just standing there, and all of a sudden, I kind of saw some movement, and I looked. And I saw something peeking around the tree and it was substantial in size. And I was like, well, you know, I couldn't figure out what the hell it was. And, and my first thought of course was immediately went to bear, but it, it didn't look like a bear and bear don't stand up behind trees like that. And it was peeking. And it, when I peeked around the tree, I was probably maybe 250 yards away on the other side of the field. It, it uh, had an apish look to the face. I remember that. And it still puzzled me. And uh, I even think I thought that possibly maybe something escaped from the zoo, like a gorilla or something. Well, anyways, it, it uh, moved away in line with the tree, my line of sight. So I, I never saw where it went. It just disappeared. And I kept it a secret. I didn't tell anybody because I really didn't know what to say to anybody at that time. And then that's when I kind of launched me into this 50-plus year investigation of Bigfoot. Well, at, at that time, were you at all aware of the creature? Had you heard stories, anything on television, anything in books at that time? 
No, there was nothing around. Never heard of it at all. It wasn't until the Patterson uh, story came out, and I think it was Argosy back in 68. That's when I saw what, yeah, that's what I saw. But no, there was nothing. Oh, I guess, well, there was something uh, of the Yeti, uh, the Shipton, uh, the pictures of the Yeti in the Himalayas. That's uh, That was explained away that it was just the uh, sun just expanded on the uh, the uh, indigenous cre- uh, animal that was there expanded the footprints and it wasn't really anything what they thought. <clears throat> so wow. I didn't think much of it. So at that time, you uh, weren't exposed to too much lore in regard to this thing. You hadn't heard any native lore about it. It wasn't really, and, and, and people forget that back in that time, you know, information wasn't so readily available. You either had to go to the library there was either a newspaper report or something on television outside of that, maybe newsreels or whatever, but it wasn't so quick and news didn't travel fast. So your first reaction when you saw this thing was that it was an ape. Right, right. Yeah, that you're absolutely true what you say. Uh, I, I had like zero information on it. I just did not know what I was looking at. And so you come back, did you, well, you were with your dad at the time. Did you bring it up to him? Uh, no, I didn't say anything to anybody. I, I just didn't know what to say. It was kind of like, well, that was weird. And I kind of stuck it back in that little weird closet space. And and uh, later on, it just kind of inspired me to start looking into the stuff after I saw the uh, Patterson information. All right. So tell me about when you first saw the, the Patterson info. Where, where were you and um, how did it hit you? I was in my uh, my grand or my grand or sorry my uncle had a cabin um, further north of that, it's up in the West Branch area, uh, on the Tupuasi River, and I was we were camping or staying at the cabin up there, and uh, I had the back room which was by the woods, I probably like five feet from the the trees, uh, we were pretty much right in the forest there, and that's when I he had the copy of that article, and that's when I was reading it. And then when I saw what it was and realized this was something totally different than I thought, it scared me then, what I had seen. And even to the point that I just took the blanket off the bed and hung it over the window so I wouldn't wake up with something like that peeking in or, you know, try to come to the window. So that's the way it affected me after I had uh, seen that. just scared the hell out of me. So this was a terrifying thing. And... It was, I mean, a lot of us, when we first saw it on TV or, you know, I think my first exposure to it was most likely in, in library books or uh, Nimoy's In Search Of, which, you know, I'm, I'm a little younger. So I, I saw a rerun of that when I was a little kid and it really hit me. And yeah. um, is that the feeling of vulnerability? Because I've seen so many different perspectives on the idea of a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch and some of them are terrifying. Some of them are more like they're getting in touch with this, as some say interdimensional creature, some say a very kind creature. In your case, it was, it was terrifying when it hit you back then. Why do you think? I wasn't, I'm sorry. I wasn't facing it at that time. It was just my imagination working overtime. Sure. At the time that I saw it, I wasn't afraid of it because I didn't know what I was looking at. You know, I didn't get a sense of fear or sense of threat. It did nothing threatening. It was just kind of looking at me and then it it went away. So at that time, it was just my imagination. I mean, 14 year old kid going working overtime and all the monsters in the woods that are out there now. And, 
you know, try to get into the cab. And that's, that's basically my mindset at that time. So as you're getting older, what was the, the next encounter? Cause your interest was building before you had a, another encounter with it, correct? Yes. And I had to, I was trying to understand uh, the locations where they were, because now I was very much interested in trying to find out what this thing was. And that drove me on for years. And over time, I started finding uh, evidence of them, like the footprints. And then when I found those evidence of footprints, and then I was looking in that environment to see what is it that, where is it they most likely, you know, hang out or hunt? And it was usually around areas that had a lot of water. And I found out that with a higher population of Sasquatch is where they had apex predators, like the, you know, the cougars and the, uh, the mountain lions in that area, wolves. And um, so over time, I just learned how to track them. I knew that they're, I took, I assumed that their main staple of meat was the white tear, white tail deer. And what I had done was I'm a hunter. So I'd say, okay, I'm in this environment. How would I go about hunting? And that's how I started increasing my possibilities of encountering them in those situations. If there, you know, if there were signs that they were there, then I would use that strategy to get myself close to, to where they are. And it just took a lot of years to, now I can walk into any kind of environment and I can tell you if they're there or not, at least in that general area. I, I'm getting, trying to get inside your head as a child and then as that progressed. So you're 14, you're going further and now it's starting to, the idea of a Bigfoot is really hitting pop culture. Didn't around the seventies, it was like a thing. It was, wasn't it kind of all over television and, and books and, and people were talking about it more, especially after the Patterson video. Can you, I, there's some people out there that don't know what the Gimlin Patterson film is. Can you give me a brief history of it? Well, it's just uh, these two, uh, I guess they're rodeo guys did the rodeo circuit. They were out to make, they were trying to capture in Northern California, a Bigfoot on uh, camera. And supposedly that's exactly what they did. And it's been um, scrutinized. It's been, uh, it's fake. It's, 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 uh, it's real. Uh, my opinion is it is real. And I think they've done a lot of locomotion uh, analysis on it, showing that it's real. So that was supposedly, and it was a female too, on top of it, which is really odd. If somebody was faking it, you'd think, why would they go get a female outfit? If they could even get an outfit, nothing like that existed. So yeah, it slowly uh, creeped into the culture. Um, that series, that $6 million man that used to be on, uh, they had a Bigfoot in that in that series. Uh, so yeah, it was slowly getting into the, uh, uh, you saw more and more you know, reports in the papers. And even, well, actually, they go back even further. They just had to know what to look for. It, back in the day, they were known as the wild man. The big the articles back in the you know early, late eighteen hundreds and that, so yeah, it did slowly start becoming more and more so, and I had not had an encounter at that point yet, like I had at fourteen, so it was more just curiosity and tracking not I wasn't even thinking about what happens if I come to one face to face, never even entered my mind at that point, right, and so going going forward. And you're learning more about it through these other stories, and your interest is building. 
And so if you could take me to the next time coming full circle at that time, right, where you encounter it again, and it could just have been hearing it or seeing something left behind, but what was the next time that you were convinced that this is what you're seeing? Oh, let's see. I'm trying to think when the earliest one was. Most of my real good activities started around 2011 when I, I just got very good at what I was doing and, and uh, getting, I was, the objective was to get into their habitat and take up a uh, campsite there. To see That's years later then. Yeah, it was years later. It was just a lot of uh, tracking and learning because the only time that I was out there during that time period was during her hunting season. So it wasn't like I was doing it around the clock. Sure. I wasn't doing it all the time. It was just, you know, and, and the and the consensus was at that time is that it's they're only up in the, uh, you know, the the Northwest Pacific area up in you know, um, uh, Seattle area and uh, um, can't think of that Canadian place. And but it's not true. They're actually all over the. They're all through. They're all through the United States, and they're also here in Michigan. And concentrations in the further north. So it was just more, um, I'm trying to think, I think it was probably about 20, 2010 or 2011, uh, we had, we were working a case that was in, in uh, mid-Michigan, and it was some Bigfoot activity was uh, near a, um, it was a dairy farm. And I had gotten some recordings from that, and we've got a lot of uh, footprints in the, of that nature. But again, I never actually saw anything at that point. But there was the the vocalizations was was quite quite dramatic from what we picked up on. So you picked up on some recordings of what is it? A howling, a screaming. Well, I actually uh, I, I I have some clips of it, like uh, less than a minute. They're like 60 seconds. And oh, I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love to place it here. Uh, so I guess here I'll create a space for it. So um, for the, for the, if you could send those to me and I'll do it in post. Uh, so here's the, the recording that Joe, uh, or here's a sample of the recording that Joe made out in the wilderness. Uh, that is what Joe claims to be a Bigfoot.
Well, it's a good example where, because they, they do have a tendency where they act um, very uh, much like apes, and then there's times they act very human. They're very intelligent. And this recording, you'll hear, if you listen very carefully, you'll hear breakage of uh, branches and the kind of things that apes do when they do displaying. And then you'll hear them make an actual vocalizations back and forth. There was, I don't know, about three of them in there, if I remember right. Um, so, yeah, that was, uh, that, that, it's very rare you do catch them on audio. I've heard them before in the wilderness, but not necessarily that I got anything running that would, because you, you don't know when it's going to happen. So, I, I just never had anything running that would, uh, would have caught it. Um, what do you think then, they are? You know, just in your opinion, after all these years, what, what do you think a Sasquatch is? Well, from all the research I've done, um, and evolution and things of that nature, I'm coming to the conclusion, are uh, you aware of the Gigantopithecus blackie? Yeah. You know, I've read up on that. Of course it existed and, and it was a right. long time ago, but yeah. Yeah. It disappeared from the fossil record about 300,000 years ago. And it also is uh, tied to the orangutan. They are actually sister clades. Uh, in the evolutionary uh, tree. So, um, and and if you get some of the pictures that I have of it, uh, you know, I've got like pictures of the arm in front of cameras and that. It looks so much like an orangutan. It isn't funny. So I'm thinking that it is the Gigantopithecus, but it didn't disappear, that it actually evolved into what we have today. Sure. Do you think, and the thing that only makes sense to me, and of course I believe in it too, uh, and I went out on a, a a Bigfoot excursion with you, and it was a great experience, you know, learning from you and going out there in the woods in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, and I we even had a, a bit of an encounter, and I'm happy to talk about that if you want to, but I want to hear more about this. But the, the thing that I wanted to bring up is that, uh, and I wanted to ask you your perspective on, is that part, part of me feels like for this to really make sense, it is... Um, it's of a higher intelligence than most animals in the forest. In other words, it's self-aware and it would most likely be aware of us and knows that it really doesn't want to go near us and probably hears, smells, and sees us coming or feels us coming through instinct from a, a way distance. So in other words, it knows how to be elusive. Do you agree with that? A 100%. <clears throat> you hit the nail right on the head. It's just like with game cameras, you know, you've got them up and deer don't know what they are. The bears don't know what they are, but Sasquatch knows what they are. And they seem to be aware of that. I don't know if they understand the mechanisms as far as it taking a picture, what that means, but all they know is when those things are there and if there's pictures of them, people come. They probably associate it that way. Do you think they have a language, almost like, you know, where primitive humans did have a language? Do you think that it's something like that? Yeah, I have heard, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I've heard males talk, and uh, yeah, there sounds like there's actually, a la there's a certain cadence to it. There's actually a language. Uh, it's not, um, I mean, it's, if you heard it, I've got some that's buried in some of the recordings I got. I'll see if I can dig some of that up and break it off for you. But, I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I, I do believe that they do have their own language, and they also appear to understand human language. And they say they can't talk it, but they can understand it. 
And the Indians that I've dealt with said that they can speak or can understand their dialect. Wow. And I address yeah. that in, in the book that I'm writing right now. How do how do the natives feel about the ones that you've consulted with? If you could tell me some stories about specifically some of those conversations. I mean, do they, whereas it seems like there's always every decade or so, there's always Bigfoot fever where people want to go out and really find it. Uh, and some of them kill it to get a sample. Um, you know, even who was it? Uh, Grover Krantz was saying that he had no problem with right. killing them. Yeah, because he uh, felt like that as an ape, yeah. Sure. How do you feel about all of the above? Um, I disagree with killing it. I mean, science is just going to have to figure out a different way to do it, like maybe do some footwork, get out in the wilderness and hunt it down and, and you know, try to get a situation like I do where I can study it. Um, the Indians themselves, they usually don't like talking about it because they're afraid of it. They think of it like a spirit being that it walks in two worlds. It walks in our reality and it walks in another reality, can kind of phase in and out of our realities. So by talking about it, they feel that it would visit them and they don't want that. So they do have a, a, a big respect for them and a, and a, a fear, fear of them. So in the um, native culture, it's normal to acknowledge that these things have been around for a very long time. Yes, the people I have talked to, yeah, absolutely. And they call them uh, the the Indians that I've dealt with up in up in the north there, the Ojibwas, uh, the Odawas. They call him the Red Man because of his red, you know, fur or hair, I should say, his red hair. Even though they do have different colors, but that seems to be a dominant color. You, and I'm sure you are aware of the um, the Theodore Roosevelt story that was written in his memoirs. Uh, the Wilderness Hunter and the Cowboy Land chapter about his encounter with a guy named Bauman during a buffalo hunt. Bauman had said to him, you know, it hadn't confided in him in this story of um, his partner. They were trapping beaver, I think, and, and his friend was killed. And Roosevelt writes this in his memoirs. Do you think that was a Sasquatch? Whatever he encountered, or whatever his his friend that he you know told him this story, this very emotional story of a man getting murdered by something. Do you think that was a, a Sasquatch? Well, um, I had not. I, I, I'm aware of the story. I have actually got the book, and I haven't read it yet, so I haven't read it for myself. It sounded like a Sasquatch, but I don't. I never seen it act that way. I mean, any anything if you corner it and threaten its life. It's going to defend itself. If that may have been the situation, but I don't know. I just uh, I, I'm having a hard time believing in it. What what that story said about it? I, I could have I, been I something else. True. You know, I mean, I know that you've done your research on other things that are out there or could be out there that um, are as elusive and and unique as the the idea of a Sasquatch. And again, I I believe it. I don't know why people see it as, or some people see it as such a far-fetched thing to believe, especially with all of the the vast array of bizarre creatures that we have samples of on this planet, all of our biological history of everything that existed, as you were saying earlier, Gigantopithecus, and, and it just doesn't make sense to me for someone to just dismiss it, especially with all the stories over the years and all of the witnesses. Um, but part of me is obviously conflicted about, you know, should we leave it alone? 
and keep it a mystery. And then part of me, of course, you know, I'm so interested in hearing stories of what you find over the years. What was the first, I guess, most piece of, in terms of your journey, when you really set out, what was the striking artifact that you found that really confirmed this for you? Hmm. I would, the only thing that really stands out in my mind is when I had my first real encounter where I was in their habitat where there was actually active Sasquatch activity and all the things that took place we had discussed uh, about eight years ago. That is the one that sits on my mind the most. There was so much from that. I do have uh, thumbprints shows a totally different uh, dermal ridge uh, structure than what we have as humans and what apes have. Um, the, the footprints, it was just so much evidence in, in the interaction with them and throwing rocks at us and all that. That was just, and as I told you, uh, I was with an Odawa Indian at that time and uh, we really didn't think we were going to live to see the morning because we were just, pushing the envelope. We couldn't leave. We were kind of stuck there. And uh, we're way in the, in the, in that particular camp. It was, it was quite a ways into the swamp. So we had no way to get out of there. We, we just had to, I I guess what we did, we just took on the, I just told myself what we need to do is we just need to do not show aggression at all. Just be passive, be very passive, be very slow about your, your movements and that kind of stuff and see if we can get through the night. And we did. And uh, from that point on, we just started developing this relationship. So that's, that is where we kind of went beyond the, the physical evidence as far as footprints and stick structures and glyphs and that kind of thing. And we started this uh, relationship where they're learning from us and we're learning from them because they're very curious. So that there was that night where you thought you were in great danger, no? Yes, because we didn't know. Can you bring me back? Just so the audience can kind of feel where you were at that very time, what? How did that night begin before the visitation happened? Well, we had already had some other areas picked out about thirty-five miles from that area where we actually had a lot of Bigfoot activity, and my plan was to camp down at the swamp floor area, and I wasn't too keen on it because it was just uh, there's so much deadfall and everything. It was not. My philosophy is that when you're dealing with them, no weapons, you put yourself almost on stage. So I sit like in uh, an open area where I'm surrounded with woods. That gives them the comfort. They can move around me. I don't ever see them, but they can always see me and what I'm doing. So those are the environments I try to set up. And that really didn't fit the bill. And my Indian friend found a place uh, that kind of fit that bill. And that's where our first camp was. And so while we were in there, that's when uh, the first one we saw was down an access trail. It's just big and black. And at that time, had, we saw like red eyes. Uh, later on, uh, we started, started seeing more. It wasn't eye shine. When you did do a, it's kind of hard to explain. It's like if you're looking at you and you have no light on it, no ambient light. It actually has like a, like a luminosity about it. It's like a, 
a whitish blue tint. But if you shine your like your flashlight on their eyes, it would reflect back like uh, like an amber color, similar to that orange, amberish right. kind of color. Um, so yeah, they were that that was uh, uh, we just didn't know. I mean, we didn't know what can we do, what we don't want to do because you don't know how you know, I might be accidentally pushing the envelope, you know, and piss them off or something, and so. It was just a lot of just being, just monitoring our actions and be very, you know, quiet and, uh, you know, try not, you know, flashing your flashlight on that kind of stuff. So that was how that began in that new area. And they just showed up right after that part after dusk where it gets very dark and it's hard to distinguish shapes and that. That's when they showed up. And it kind of started with uh, some rock throwing. It never hit us. But they would, you know, we were we had an access road, so we had our cars with us. We had all of our equipment, and and they would hit the vehicles and stuff with these rocks, and so that was that was created a very anxious moment too. It was it was just draining to go through this for hours on end, and we just didn't know any time they could have came into camp, they could have done something to us, um, but they didn't do it. You know, they they kept their distance, and uh, we just kind of weathered it. You know, and I it was almost I felt like I was going through the gauntlet. Let's see how they react. You know, we're going to run panic you know, through the woods screaming or whatever. And we stuck it out and uh, it got better the next night from there. But yeah, we didn't know. It was just, it was just an unknown. We had no idea what was going to happen. information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine. And at that point, you completely ruled out that it, it it was anybody else. You know, this was in, what was the location like? The location was uh, Swamp. Uh, we were on uh, higher ground, uh, so uh, it was dry in that particular area. A uh, lot of uh, pine. Um and was it miles into the wilderness? Was it far away from where anyone else could have just went in there? Let's say a bunch of kids were hanging out. It wasn't that kind of thing, right? No, no. This, no. This, this, uh, this is a a big swamp. Uh, if you had anybody that would be in there, it might be the DNR. 
you know, some of those trails that they use to get back in there. But this particular one, I mean, there's a couple swamp areas that we went into, but that particular one, no, we were quite a ways in, I don't know, maybe um, four miles in, five miles in, something like that. Yeah, I'm just trying to, you know, for anyone in the audience that might speculate, well, someone was in the woods throwing rocks. This is a, um, isn't this a common thing of the of the Sasquatch to throw rocks at camps, or especially when people are looking for them? Right, and apes do it too. They also throw rocks, but yeah, it's it is. Um, they had a variety. It was used to, uh, like for instance, if I was flashing my light around and I hit in an area where I didn't know they were and then ruin their night vision, they would throw a rock and hit the car with a big twang, and then I realized that's what I was doing. So it was not like get the hell out of here type of thing at all. It was more directing us, these are the rules, don't do this, don't do that kind of thing. And so it was just a matter of sitting and listening and watching and understanding what was going on. But you always had that fear because, I mean, these things were huge. They could rip you to pieces easily. Sure, if they wanted to. I mean, we figured the average height from what we could see from the eye shine from some of the trees was at least uh, eight foot. Wow. And at that point when you realized you weren't in, or at least you you felt you weren't in great danger as long as you played by certain rules, did you go back and try and communicate with them? Oh, we we stayed out there for eight days. We didn't come back. We just we continued with it. It was just too much of an opportunity to lose. So how so what how did it progress in, in as the days went forward? Well, we started understanding more of the functions of the rock throwing. It did have a multiple bunch of things that and what I did was I knew that they used uh, infrasound, you know, twenty hertz and under. Uh they use it in hunting, they used it in their, it's in their calls for communicating because it will go through dense forest getting to another Sasquatch far away so they can hear it. So I thought, you know, maybe if I used the didgeridoo, I made a decision of this about a year before, that they maybe they would uh, uh, would like that sound because it is a low-frequency sound. And so that's what I did. I, I would play the didgeridoo for the, the next night, and they seemed to enjoy it. They were very quiet, and they would listen as I, as I played it. Didn't do it very well, but they didn't seem to mind. And uh, we just kept filming all while all this was taking place. And um, they would leave the first time they left a, a glyph, which is the best way I can describe it, is just some sort of symbol built out of sticks that may be a foot long, somewhere around that size. And they would make these different symbols. And they would leave that on the back of our tent. We'd come back and get up in the morning and there'd be the, the symbol here. And I started doing our symbols. You know, I'd do the alphabet. And they would come in and they would take the sticks that I had and make it into something different. But they never added or took or took away the sticks. So I figured they were just playing with them, you know, like some but it's communication. So we sure. did this for uh for quite a while. And uh yeah, this went on for like eight days. We got more and more used to them. And then from that point on, we started going uh Almost every month we were up there at least for several days to continue on the process. All through 2013, there was like six six months of that going on, at least minimum four days. That's an incredible amount of time, especially and, and required, I think, to research something like this. 
And so the communication continued. That's also something I wanted to uh, bring up while it's on my mind is that I feel like even though we've seen communication from apes and 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 you know chimps and gorillas, uh, they do communicate with human humans and they mm-hmm. can learn. Uh, but it seems like this species is a bit more advanced than that. Um, maybe somewhere between human and ape. Would you agree? Yeah, they do act like they're right stuck in between both. And, but they get you know, that intelligence and awareness that you talked about very much so. Sure, because that's the only thing that makes sense. Because again, I believe, and, and I believe in many of these stories throughout the years, uh, and that the only thing that makes sense is that they're aware. They, you know, one perspective I've had on it, and I think I talked about this with you years ago, is that I think, especially that they communicated with the natives, they were okay with that, probably quite elusive when it came to settlers, you know, because settlers were probably much quicker to shoot them. And um, when industry started to occur and technology started to occur, that's perhaps when they retreated and maybe purposefully keeping their populations down. Do you feel the same way? Well, they, they see man as, as a predator. They understand what man is capable of. And uh, they avoided the Indians too. I mean, they didn't. Uh, I mean, there's stories about them coming into camp and stealing children and that kind of stuff. But, you know, you can't confirm anything like that. Just a lot of fear about the unknown. But Sure, sure. Maybe personalities vary too, like they do with humans or animals. You know, you get a vicious dog and a, and a beautiful dog. Well, they, they do have a sense of humor. I've learned that much. But and tell I me. would tell you, well, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that time I was telling you about, there was a, an access trail. And on the other side of it, there was a stand of trees. And this is originally where they were confronting us, which was to the west of where we are, where our camp was. And they, when we were uh, videotaping, there was um, the eye shine, which on the side of the tree and the height and all that. We started picking up also a white uh, reflection. And that's when I realized that some of those trees had those um, thumbtacks, those uh, reflective thumbtacks that hunters use to find their way out of the woods, you know, at night or to go to a particular place at dusk. And so we decided, like, well, this is kind of pointless to try to record this because we might be picking up this stuff, too, this ice shine. So we need to, the next morning, we went out and we removed 14 reflectors off from trees. Now, some of the areas where we were getting the actual ice shine was kind of a little bit to the right of that. So it was those particular trees didn't have anything on it. But anyways, we took them out of the environment. So we got the idea, so why don't we take this tree up that's closer to us. We measured how far away it was. We made a cross on it out of these 14 tacks. And we were able to say, okay, if it's like near the top of this, it's it's this many feet tall. It's like the thing they put on doors of stores so you know how tall you are when you walk out. So we had this set up to help us orientate to it at nighttime. So the next the next night, or that night came along, and we went to uh, do the infrared stuff, and we we lit up the area uh, with our other lights, 
and it was like looking at Las Vegas. There was reflectors everywhere. They had gone out into the wilderness and collected everyone they could find and took our cross and they put it on all these trees right across the street from us. And there was probably, I think there was 35 in total that they had. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah, I know it was just kind of like, we were stunned. Like, wow. Well, they, I mean, that strikes me as something that's quite intelligent. You know, I, I think animals are underestimated too. You know, they, they, they have an intelligence to them that's unlike human intelligence, but it's not necessary that they, we have the same. And I think this, uh, this species is quite intelligent, especially to devise something like that, you know, along with a sense of humor. Yeah, uh, it doesn't have, uh, like you said, it has the awareness. I mean, the animals don't have, I mean, they have awareness, but not awareness of us and awareness of the environment to the extent that the Sasquatch does. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, we still underestimate animals. I mean, I've had quite a time, you know, I've had uh, an opportunity to observe a, a variety of them. And some of them have shown, even birds in some cases have shown quite a personality, you know. Sure. Um, but so from there, because you've been you've been at it almost constantly since what you say twenty eleven. Were there ever any points of danger? Did you ever feel like your life was in danger after that? You know that first time where rocks were being thrown and you weren't sure where this was that, going. That particular one uh, was where I really felt in danger because. You know, it was we were trapped. We had nowhere to go. And uh, other than that, um, you just remind me, I forgot that in 2012, uh, we had a gentleman that was uh, in the area that we were in. Uh, they had a uh, homestead, well, not a homestead, but he had a cabin there and a lot of land. It was surrounded by state land, so it was private. And the Sasquatch were staying on that land. And I had an encounter. We were camping on his property one night, and you could hear them whooping, and they were knocking on trees. And I had a, uh, a friend from England that was uh, played the Indian flute. So we're sitting around the, the fire, and it's kind of an area in the woods he cleared out where he could bring an RV in there or throw some tents in there. But it was right in, right in, the, in the woods in, on his property. And... I happened to have my night vision, and I looked to my left where there was um, a forest there, of course. And just just inside, with the very edge, there was standing a Sasquatch. And I had his face. I could see its face in the scope. I saw that it had, like, round eyes. I saw that it had, uh, you know, the brow ridge went all across the eyes. And... Uh, it was listening to to uh, the man play that flute, and it was um, you could see the the expression of wonder on its face. It was so human; it wasn't funny, and it almost kind of reminded me of uh, do you remember the movie Young Frankenstein when Peter Boyle is like reaching out for the for the music, the notes of the music. Of course. That's what it reminded me of. But it was just, I had it for three minutes. I watched this and I had my, uh, my Odawa friend there and he came up and he got the scope and he was watching it, you know, until it finally uh, went away. But uh, 
yeah, that was uh, that was just amazing. I, I that was so human, it wasn't funny. I mean, you could just you know when you look at people and they're just enjoying something, that's that's exactly what it was doing. Yeah, I would expect that from from the behavior, all the stories of all the encounters. I'm sure there's a variety of personalities, like there is with any species. Sure, uh, absolutely. You know, because it might explain some of the more violent attacks. Um, I think the Ape Canyon thing was really just this family trying to get these guys out of there because one of them was shot. You know, I hear these stories and you never, you know, humans are shooting at them. I mean, just imagine, if you will, a group of mountain men being shot at. They're going to fight back. They're, they might even try and kill you. Uh, yeah, I don't know how much I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I I would believe that they probably did shoot one, but I don't know about the retaliation. I, I don't see that in them. I don't see them being vengeful. I don't see them uh, uh, being um, um, aggressive. I haven't really seen that. Now, if you're like, say, a Sasquatch is fishing in a particular part of the river and you don't know it and you're in there and you start fishing, they're going to throw rocks and that things at you to say, you know, hey, I'm fishing here. Leave the area something like that, but they don't, I don't see where they're territorial. Uh, they just have ranges that they roam. They're more nomadic. And uh, I, I just don't see the territorial and I don't see the aggressiveness at all. Sure. You think mainly they just want to be left alone. Oh, absolutely. And, and like you said, we're infringing more and more on their area. And that's where we're getting more and more sightings now. A so lot more. When do you think it might be? Because I, 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 once again, I believe it exists. When do you think it might be that there's going to be this indisputable, concrete evidence where people just finally accept the fact that these things are few in number, but are they do exist? Well, right now, I've collected some uh, pretty good... Uh, it's been very difficult uh, getting any kind of DNA, you know studies done it's very expensive and there's a lot of uh folks out there that aren't exactly uh above uh trust <laughs> and uh i i had made uh a connection uh with uh university of cambridge and um i was able to send them hair samples i have collected over the last four years as well as environmental DNAs, possibly some uh, saliva. And I was working with a geneticist over there uh, on how to uh, store this stuff. And I sent it all over, like, just, just July. So I'm kind of waiting to see what they come back with with that. Um, I know they're in there. I've seen their, uh, I've uh, seen them uh, in, the, in the brush moving away. I've seen their footprints. I set up what we call an exchange area. I mean, we did this uh, up in northern Michigan where we would leave them uh, things that they can't get in the environment. Like they like candy. They like uh, chocolate. They like peanut butter, that type of thing. And we would leave that. And then they would take it. And then they would leave us like a pudding stone or a couple uh, pieces of uh, birch bark, uh, things of that nature. And... Uh, and that's kind of what I was doing up or in this area that I'm working currently right now for probably the last five years. And um, they haven't really left me anything, but they do take of it. And I, that's where I got the hair samples from. 
I set hair traps. And uh, the other thing I found out was that since uh, DNA testing didn't seem to be, you know, in the cards, I found out that each species has its, in its hair, there's a, a cuticle, the, the uh, scales of the hair is unique for each species. So the hair that I had, I was able to cast it and using my compound microscope, I was able to photograph it. And then I went in and I sampled everything that was in that environment, the raccoons, the possums, dogs, humans. I even added apes to it. It matched none of it. Everything was different. Those are the hair samples that I sent to the University of Cambridge. And hopefully I'll hear something maybe, maybe in January or February, something like that, because it takes quite a while. So this leads me to a question, and I've asked a few people in regard to different facets of the paranormal or undiscovered. Do you think that the governments of the world, or let's say in our case, the U.S. government, is well aware of the species and in a way they're protected? So let's say you send something off to a university it might disappear. They might come back with a negative result. Do you think there's some kind of protection or conspiracy to keep this information from us? Well, um, there's always that possibility, knowing how the government works. But of course, like I said, I'm working with the UK, so I'm not too concerned about that. Um, but I will tell you that the government is aware of it, and I'll tell you a little story how I found out about that. Um, I, uh, the, I worked with a person that was, uh, um, worked for the, uh, U.S. Army Intelligence and, uh, we were working, uh, a job together. We were in IT. He was an IT guy at that time. And he decided to go back. Well, I was talking about Sasquatch and I would pick his brains like, okay, how do I get in this area? How do I cross this rivers, you know, by myself? How do I do all these things? And he was giving me all this advice all this training, and uh, he wasn't a believer in it, and he ended up leaving that uh, and going to work for the government again, and they were developing maps for pilots. When they go down, they have the shows where food supplies are, where, you know, villages are. Um, this is an area that has, you know, rattlesnakes. This is an area that has that. Well, he calls me up one day. He says, I got to talk to you, and I can't talk to you on the phone. Let's meet in the back alley. So he came over, and he was all excited. He says, what you said is correct. They do exist. He said, I had this uh, map that we were uh, making for the pilots. In there, there's a section up in uh, Washington of the Sasquatch. They actually have a picture of the Sasquatch. They have its area, its habitat. We're at Rome. So they had all that information in there. I wanted to bring it to you to confirm it, but I can't do that because it's classified. So that is how I know that something was going on because I trusted him. He wasn't even a believer in it. He was really excited about that. It really did exist. Wow. And have you ever felt any pushback from anybody or anybody that... Um... And I have to ask whether it happened or not, but ha has anyone ever tried to suggest to you not to talk about it? No, I've never had anything like that. I'm pretty much, uh, I'm not a joiner, and I pretty much stay out of, stay out of the mainstream of, of uh, Bigfoot. 
Um, I mean, there's a lot of earnest people out there trying to find things out, but there's a lot of the people out there that uh, I just uh, wouldn't want to deal with. Uh, very vicious, very negative, you know. So I, I just I, avoid it. Yeah, I think that's with it, that goes with just anything. I mean, it happens in the the world of movies. It happens in law enforcement. Uh, there's just a, some strange. I guess you can call them competitive. However, I just think it's just they're very insecure people that try to get in your way of you of progress that you might lend to everyone else. Obviously, you know, being a lone wolf is probably the best policy in that case because you're writing your book, you're you're finding this information out yourself. And trust me, the audience only cares about that. They want to know what you have to offer. They don't care about all this infighting stuff that happens in these little clusters. It, it means nothing, you know? It means nothing to them. Well, I'll tell you a story um, that involved the government. Uh, this was, uh, yeah, this was, uh, t- yeah, 2012, late 2012. And uh, in that particular area, there is military activity. And when I had gotten up in there uh, that weekend that I came up, uh, we were friends with one. There was a lot of gas wells up in there. And there was a a guy up there that checked the gas wells and, you know, did his thing every day. And the woods or the swamp area that we had a lot of activity and we'd been working it for a while. All of a sudden, these groups of soldiers showed up. They dropped them in somewhere in the middle of that swamp, and they worked their way out. They, and it scared the hell out of this guy. And he was telling us about it. He said to the point that he was carrying his gun with him in the car when he saw them. But he said, you know, they, were, they weren't like in any particular kind of uniform. They're kind of like doing their own thing. But they were carrying some kind of like an assault shotgun. I never saw any of this, but – and I have a friend that was – on. Uh, another friend of mine that was in military intelligence, and I was talking to him. I said, who would this be? And he said, well, a lot of times uh, special forces dress like that. They, they wear whatever they want to wear and, you know, the kind of weapons that they use and that kind of stuff. And he, in his opinion, that was special forces that were in there. What were they doing? Are they hunting for this thing, you know, spreading out and going through that swamp area? Because it was a very active area, very active. So anyways, um, so we talked to this guy. We're getting information on it. And uh, we also had people that were saying they would go into that wooded area and these military types would show up and tell them to leave the area. Uh, the soldiers would tell them to leave the area. But, I, you know, I, I can't confirm that. But I've heard stories of that nature up there. So one day after we were kind of inquiring and moving around and, and – uh, it, it just seemed like it was getting very strange up there. You know, we've been followed a few times that we had to drive through these back roads, you know, to lose whoever. I don't know if it was a local following us. I had no idea, but we're definitely being followed. So we were in a, uh, you're familiar with the tracker, the small tracker, the geo tracker vehicle. Yeah. Yes. So we were driving on a main county road, which is a dirt road, and it's out in the middle of nowhere. And as I was, we were driving, he was driving, all of a sudden it just felt kind of weird. And out of the blue come this A-10 warthog. And I had the window down and I looked up. And that thing was so low that it literally broke the tops of the trees and you could feel the heat of the engine. And we lost control of the car. 
literally lost control of the car. Well, he was able to keep us before we went over this. Uh, he had a very deep ditch, and we almost rolled over into that, but he was able to save it. So he said, what the hell was that? Was, you know, like somebody painted us where they don't, you know, practice runs, you know? Uh, we didn't know, so I got a hold of my friend, and uh, he said, no, that's totally illegal. That will not happen. Uh, he said, did you see the uh, numbers on the fuselage? I said, it had no numbers on it at all. Nothing. I mean, that was, it was so close. Uh, treetop, maybe 60 feet up, something like that. I mean, you could just feel the wash of that jet engine as that, or those twin jet engines as that thing went over. So I didn't know what to make of it. And I was really kind of, well, we were concerned. It was like, was somebody trying to kill us? You know, make us have an accident? Like, oh, they just ran off the road. But you could see the trees where it splintered the tops off as it went through. And they would have been they would have been on radar. They would have known uh, what they were doing. So I I have no idea. I have no explanation for it. He just said that cannot happen. That's what he told me. Wow. So that's the only government stuff I had. So I have had nobody come in front of me and say, "Hey, you know, forget about this. Walk away." I've never had that happen. In any yeah, shape but, or form. But those two stories are enough to lead me to believe that. They're aware of something. I mean, they seem to have their hands in just about every facet of the paranormal, everything from psychic research to um, UFOs, of course. But a lot of those things are being revealed slowly. Uh, even the, you know, something outside of the paranormal realm, but conspiratorial, the Kennedy assassination. I mean, the recent revelations of that are everything's blowing my mind lately. It seems like all of these things that were top secret and concealed are slowly being revealed to us. And I wonder if, if the, uh, the history of the Sasquatch, which should be on some kind of record with the governments might also be confirmed and revealed. Now I'm not, I'm not a person who needs confirmation from a government to believe in something never did, never will. But it's interesting that they're starting to, you know, they're starting to let these things out a little bit. It's funny you mentioned that because uh, back in uh, uh, when I was young, I was in like junior high school, you know, you were uh, uh, psychic phenomena. ESP was nonsense. It just didn't exist. And I thought it was funny uh, that we had these people come in with one of my classes one night. They had to stay over and they were testing people for ESP. And I said, well, how can they be testing people for ESP when they say it's nonsense? It doesn't exist. And then later on, you find out about remote viewing and all that stuff was going on around that time. So. Sure, sure. And like I said, you know, it's so important. And a lot of my work looks into that. And it's it's like, well, you know, we're told that this is fiction, but it's not because the government experimented with it and they put a lot of money and time and years into it and got results. And so why wouldn't more be uh, revealed? Um, you know, like I said, very recently, they're revealing that 100% confirmed there is something out of this world that has been flying around observing us and may have even taken down planes in different areas. Um, that's something to be concerned about. And isn't it for, for both of us, when we were kids, we're all interested in this stuff to now come into a world where all of this so-called fiction is spilling over into reality, finally. You know, I mean, it was always here, but uh, what an interesting world to be in. And right. that that's why we have all these organizations, because, you know, no, we weren't getting any answers from the authorities. 
So we created our own organizations. We went out hunting them in UFOs and Bigfoot or whatever else is out there. Sure. Do you think that, um, I guess, between the generational gaps, because a lot of us grew up with interest and we're slightly different in age, but still, it's all of us are in our well adulthood and we're in positions, those people come into positions of power and their interest is is there. I'm sure even recent presidents have been like, show me everything at Area 51. I want to know everything. You know, it's like you walk in there and they probably don't even have that clearance because they're just there for a little while. But I feel like soon we're going to, a lot of this is going to be revealed. I guess my question is, having said that, my question now is, what do you think the world's going to be like for people who are interested in, in finding this mystery, exploring this mystery and the species, let's say in 10 years from now, when it's 100% confirmed and perhaps even we've, we've made contact with aliens, um, when it's 100% confirmed that our psychic abilities are real and they can be developed, it, are, do you think more people are going to be looking to the what was once fantastic and saying, hey, you know, this is all real. Everything's real. Um, you mean, what is it? How, how's it going to come in the future when it does uh, become revealed that it is real? Is that what you're talking about? How do you see the future? Because it's clear that it's exponentially changing right now. Like, they're, you know, the governments of the world are starting to reveal all of the above. And so in 10 years from now, it looks like we're going to be in a very different place. Um, so what would it be like for someone who is looking for a Sasquatch in 10 years from now? Well, I'm hoping that, uh, it will be revealed that they do exist and that, uh, actions will be taken to protect the species. And I'm afraid they're going to put them in laboratories or they're going to put them in zoos. And it's like taking a human being and doing that to them. I mean, they have emotions, they have families, they have a culture like, uh, you know, different than ours, but they do. They live in family groups, small groups. Um, that's the way they avoid us. Uh, they do gather together on occasion, but not like a tribe like the Indians did. So um, I'm not sure. I mean, it's very with the political climate these days. And, you know, even though the uh, UFO stuff came up with the, um, you know, the Navy had shown those pictures and stuff. But did you notice how it kind of shut down? There's not a whole lot coming out anymore. Yes. This is what I think is going to happen. It's going to be suppressed. It's like it's time to tell them, but then all of a sudden somebody put the kibosh on it. And it's well, you know, they've re they've been revealing it slowly over the last couple of years or so, or even a little further than that in the news. And it's as if I don't want to say that nobody cares. A lot of people do. They're excited. Uh, they're interested. But yeah. it's you would think there would be a bigger reaction. When, when you finally have these officials releasing these documents, and there isn't, um, and just as an observer of our current times, I mean, we live in some, I don't want to say, some, some bizarre, some dark, but also kind of exciting because we don't live in mediocre times for sure. We, we, we're living in a very weird state of flux. And, um, you know, just to, just to know that a lot of this is being revealed. Part of me thinks, like I had said earlier, that I, I, I think the governments are aware of the species. It only makes sense that they might be because um, they would have known about this thing and perhaps they're protected, you know? 
uh, it seems like they're aware of everything. And if you were to encounter one, and you've already made it clear that you wouldn't shoot one, but how would you deal, let's say you're out in the woods, how would you deal with, a? and you come across somebody else, and they pull out their weapon, how would you deal with that person? If there was a Sasquatch present? Sure, sure. And they were I about would to try shoot. to stop them from shooting. Okay. Yeah, I'm just curious. I, you know, again, like, I try to, try to, I'm really curious of these scenarios um, because there's so many different people looking for them. It's yeah. bound to happen. Someone's bound to, to kill one eventually. I've had uh, bear hunters that actually had one in the scope and he, he said, I can't shoot. They said it was like murder. It was too human looking. He didn't want to take the chance. He didn't shoot it. Sure. And I mean, how could you blame him? Um, no, I don't. Yeah. When you really see them up close, uh, you can see they're not uh, like a bear or something. There's 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 an intelligence there, like ours. There's an intelligent like ours. They don't have the technology, but there's an intelligent like ours. Kind of look at it. I mean, we come off from the uh, the chimpanzees and the bonobos came later, but we broke off from that about five million years ago, and we developed into what we are today. And I think this Sasquatch broke off from apes uh, maybe 20 million years ago. It was had a similar uh, ancestor to the orangutan, and it developed to what it is today. That's like another version of the human that's only probably more ape, I guess you would describe it as. Until you see the genetics, it's hard to say. Wow. And what what was your latest encounter up to recent days? Uh, let's see. Uh, mainly, I've just been working my area, collecting data. And uh, I had another place that's uh, uh, it's called the Upper Peninsula. I don't know if you've been up there. But um, I had an area up in there where I had uh, an encounter with a small family of Sasquatches up there. And I've been working that area for about three years. So we were just up there last year. And they had left that particular area, and we were hunting them down into a new into a new place. And so we found a lot of new evidence and stuff there. So... Uh, there wasn't anything that was real visual or we had no sounds or anything like that, but we definitely found a, a new spot. And then down where I'm at now, there's a place very close to where I, I live that I have been working for five years and slowly building up, trying to uh, um, catch them on film, get some better evidence from what, what I have right now. So that's mainly what I'm doing. Of course, right now I have to be careful because there's hunters out there. So I have to kind of just uh, avoid the area for right now until the hunting season's over. Is this a uh, deer hunting season? Yeah, it's gun season. I mean, there was bow season. Uh, one of the guys literally where I had my exchange area for four years put uh, a tree stand like within about 50 yards of it. So it made it quite difficult to get in there. So I had to, being a hunter and all that, I just kind of tracked him and see how he moved through the woods and what he did and where he went. Does he hunt with another fellow? What his vehicle looked like? What his times were? I did all that so I could go out there 
still to leave uh, food for them to keep that relationship going without the hunters being aware of it. Wow. So that's that's over now. Gun season, uh, well, there's right now it's black powder season here, still bow season in December. So January 1st, uh, all that will cease. And I'll Have just you continue come- where, where I, what I was doing. Did you ever come across any of the hunters, you know, that you weren't on an expedition with and they may have seen one? Like, have you, have you? I never talk about it. I don't want anybody to even be aware that they're out there. But I did talk to a fellow that kind of grew up in that area. And he says, oh, yeah, we're very much aware there's Sasquatch in this area. Very much aware. And uh, I've been kind of... I had this, uh, uh, one of the guys I'm working with is a medical doctor. Uh, we found out we had similar interests, and so we've been kind of hunting together. And one of the people that he hunts with uh, before was a gentleman that I told you that grew up in that area. And he had sent me a picture. Uh, I write a column for a magazine in the UK, and sometimes I write about Sasquatch. And there was a picture that had these young saplings, and there was nine deer skulls on those where it went right up the uh, where the spinal cord goes up into the skull. They had nine of those on these saplings just hanging there and one group as you walked up to this path is where it was. Now the interesting thing was that the DNR went in there and they the skulls had disappeared and they put a berm in there so you couldn't drive back in that access area anymore. They pretty much closed it off that particular area. You have to hike in from a different location. And I even questioned them on it. I even showed them pictures of it. And they stated that, um, you know, we don't know anything about that. Well, why'd you put a berm in there? Why you close the place off? And they just wouldn't answer me. They just walked away. So, <laughs> and I was trying to, I said, was this thing like, you know, like, uh, you know, like a warning, stay away kind of thing? I mean, that's the way I'd interpret it. But knowing the way that they are, I said, I, I have a hard time believing that. Well, I talked to the gentleman that, you know, when they discovered it and photographed all this, I said, was there anything that you did? And he says, well, you know, the day, the week before, I had I found a small uh, a, a skull to a, a squirrel, and I put it on one of those saplings. And when it came back the next week, they had all these skulls sitting on these saplings from deer. So it was more like it was like a almost like a competition that they mimicked what he did, but they, you know, did it many times fold. And I find that's their nature. They do have a competition about them. That's amazing. And you could look at it as a sense of humor too, I guess. Is there is there anything you want to talk about in regard to the animal? Well, in regard to the species, um, in regard to your experiences that I haven't asked about? Well, the main thing that uh, is that uh, the book I'm writing right now is it it's shows the Sasquatch for what it truly is. It's not what uh, commercials show it as or what Hollywood shows it as. It's always a monster. It's always chasing people, always killing things. It's not like that at all. And in part of the book, I do make an argument for their rights that they do have they should have rights just like we do. And so it's more of a familiarizing people with it. And hopefully there'll be uh, uh, 
you know, some genetics to back up what I say to give a little bit more iron to my words. And um, so, yeah, I'm more interested. I want people to be aware of it. I want them to know it exists. I want people to give them their space and to be very much aware of things when builders go in and taking wildernesses and put in there whatever they build in those areas. They're destroying their habitats, you know. They do coexist with us. And they do take advantage of things like our farms and our, um, you know, um, agriculture, all that stuff. They do take advantage of all that. It helps them survive. So, yeah, I'm just, I'm afraid that we're, if something doesn't happen sooner, we reveal and people are aware of it and what's going on. I'm afraid that it's going to be too late that we're going to French the point that it's going to be disastrous for them. Wow. I really appreciate it today, Joe. Uh, so good talking to you. And I want to have you back on at some point, especially when the book is done and we can talk about it. Um, and I ask every guest this on the way out. If if you were to retain something on your way out of this life, out of this physical body, and it, it's your consciousness, whatever it is, what would you take with you? Uh, the knowledge that I helped humanity. to Off to the Witch. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and I want to thank you for joining the conversation tonight. Bigfoot is one of my favorite tales of the unknown. I've often wondered why some people find it hard to believe, but perhaps, for many reasons, it's better off left a mystery. Until our next night gathering, try to enjoy the daylight. <laughs>